Well, good morning again. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4 today. We're going to be starting in verse number 26. We've been reading the book of Mark as a church for the last several months. Uh, So for those of you maybe just now tuning in or if you need a quick refresher, what we're doing is we are following the course of Jesus' life and his ministry through the gospel according to Mark. But now most of this information actually comes from one disciple that saw it all firsthand, and that was the apostle Peter. At this point in his ministry, Jesus begins to teach. He starts using parables, and these are kind of short, sort of metaphorical stories that Jesus uses to communicate some high-complexity spiritual concepts. And almost nobody understands them right away. See, this, this massive crowd, they come to stand before Jesus, and they're there, hopefully, to receive his healing they've heard about, to receive his teaching... But instead, Jesus just starts talking about agriculture for like several parables back to back. All he teaches about are seeds and dirt, and it's a little confusing. So let's just continue that today. We're going to look at verse 26 this morning. So Mark 4, 26. At this point in the story, Jesus has gathered a massive crowd. He's got his disciples with him, and then he's got his closest friends, his kind of inner circle of uh, disciples who would then become apostles. And right now, he's just blowing everybody's minds. about. He's doing this by teaching about what the kingdom of God is, and he's doing it with authority. So what does Jesus say? Well, in verse 26, Jesus says this. Let's go to the text. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Jesus is just an amazing teacher, right? He knows exactly what he's doing. He invented the brain. He knows how the synapses work. And he's completely aware of the way that our, uh, our families of origin and the place of our birth, those things become kind of the lens at which we filter through information. So it's not an accident that Jesus keeps talking about plants and dirt. He's doing that on purpose. And he's doing it because it works. It's working for the crowds around Jesus then, and it actually endures for us here today as well. More so, Jesus isn't being uh, intentionally vague or obtuse. You don't have to be a farmer to understand what any of the points that he's trying to make. Here in the parable of the growing seed, your Bible may call it something different. Uh, verses 26 through 29, the focus is very much about how you and I, how we relate to the kingdom of God. Jesus here, Jesus is communicating a sense of purpose and empowerment for you and I. And if you're like me, this is really appealing. I love to just be told. I love to be told that there's something that has to be done. So when I hear Jesus say, the kingdom of God is like there are seeds to be spread, so go out and do this. Go be faithful sowers of the kingdom. I'm all about that. I love to take the guesswork out of things. But of course, you know, it would never be that simple, right? Jesus would have just stopped there. 
No, Jesus here, Jesus is totally destroying the people's preconceptions about how God was at work in Israel. Jesus is forcing you and I as well. He's forcing us to come face to face with some potentially uncomfortable truths about ourselves. So let's start with, the, with how Jesus is addressing the crowds around him. See, most people knew in the back of their heads that there would be a deliverance for the people of Israel. See, Israel had been struggling with about 400 years of apparent silence from God. And maybe we can just put ourselves there for just a moment. Put ourselves in their shoes. Hold on to the fact that you've heard stories about the God of all creation swooping in to rescue his chosen people. You were raised with those stories. You were raised with stories about a God who delivered their ancestors from slavery and oppression. About a God who united, unified, and empowered his people. After 400 years, could you even believe any of that stuff happened anymore? Do you feel like that today? Maybe from your perspective, it's been 2,000 years of silence. I don't know. Like, how often have we heard about the ways that, that God provided for our, our, our family members and our friends in the past, but kind of maybe it seems like you haven't heard a whisper or an inkling of evidence that God was going to follow through on his promises? See, the prophets, they spoke about a coming Savior. And everybody there was hoping for this noble king to come in on a white horse and kind of just lob the heads off of their enemies. But instead, they see this man. He's speaking about the kingdom of God, and he's speaking about it with authority. These people are gathered around him. They're hinging on every word that comes out of his mouth. They're ready for Jesus to say, the kingdom of God is going to come and change everything. And he does say that, but what he says is that the kingdom of God is a small, a quiet, and unassuming seed. And that it's our job to faithfully place it where it may or may not even grow. And just to trust that whatever needs to happen is going to happen. This is a huge subversion of their expectations. The Israelites were sure that the kingdom of God would just come in, it would sweep across the land, and it would change everything right away. But they've just learned that the kingdom of God is going to be like a seed. It's going to be underground. They have no idea if anything's even happening because they can't see it happen. They have no idea how long they're going to have to wait, and they have no control over when it comes into fruition. And honestly, I have to imagine some kind of tension at all this. Like if we look back in the, in, in the chapter, the, the disciples have already expressed some difficulty, some frustration and confusion with a lot of Jesus' teachings. But Jesus go ahead, goes ahead and he maintains his course and he continues to teach in the most effective way. He uses stories and parables and illustrations because it is important for them and it's important for you and I to understand. So church, as we hear Jesus' words, we should feel two things. We should feel the urgency to obey and the freedom to wait. Maybe those two things, urgency and waiting, don't usually coexist very easily. But we're going we're gonna to continue to look into that. So let's recap what our parable actually says today. God says that the kingdom of God is a seed to be sown. So what we are to do is to, one, sow the seeds. Number two, to wait. 
And then number three, to reap the harvest. Which one of those sounds the hardest to you? If you're, if, for me, it's waiting. That's, that's the obvious choice for me. It sounds really hard to just wait when you know something important is supposed to happen. So if you grew up in, a, in an evangelical background, this teaching probably feels pretty evangelical, and it is. I believe that it is. Christ followers, they are men and women that share their faith. They share it because of the work that Christ has done in each of our lives. We are compelled to make an appeal for the sake of others for the kingdom. That's something that is just baked into our DNA. We should be doing that. But sometimes there's this extra piece of teaching that kind of makes its way into our minds and it can take root in our lives in a way that can cast a dark shadow on Christ's teaching. See, what happens is when we feel called into somebody else's life to share Christ with them and when we, see, we have the desire to see their lives changed, and their heart given to Christ, those are good things. But the temptation is to think that we have to bear the weight of that change. Does that make sense? When we want somebody to change and give their lives to Jesus, the temptation for us is to bear the weight of that change. Let me come right out and say it. Put it on the screen. The power to change a heart is Christ's alone. You and I don't have the power to turn somebody else into a Christian. Try as we might. That power is beyond us. It is a huge temptation for each of us when we see someone struggling or maybe just not acting right that we want to step in and help. And that part's fine. Like, we should be good helpers to people. We should know when they're struggling. We should know when they're hurting. And we should step in when we can. But the trouble comes when we make the decision to bear the weight of their standing before the Lord. And when that happens, our only real recourse is to force their behavior to change so that they might conform into whatever idea of Christianity we have. Church, that's putting the sled before the dog. All I'm saying is that if Jesus was teaching Alaskans, there'd be a lot more dog sled imagery. That's, that's my argument. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Really, think about what your gut response would be if a friend or a family member who thought you were on the, or a friend or family member that you thought was on the up and up, if they began a lifestyle that you believed was blatantly against God's will for their lives. That is really scary. Like, parents, what do you do? When your kid comes home and just says they're done with God and they want nothing to do with him. See, church, that's when the runner is going to hit the snow for us. The runner is the part of the sled that sits on the... I had to look that up. I didn't know that off the top of my head. I cheated. I know, I cheated. Uh, you that's the only two, I promise. That's when the runner is going to hit the snow. I laughed so hard when I wrote that. <laughs> that was good. Uh... All right, church, what I want for you and I to understand is that when that happens, and it will, it will, they're going to come home and tell you they don't want God. We must resist the temptation to try to force them to behave in a way that doesn't actually reflect who they really are. Because changing behavior to get Jesus to accept them, it's not going to work. The power to change a heart is Christ's alone.
That can be your main point today. That's what you could take home if you want. That's great. That's a great point. That should give you some comfort tonight as you lay your head down on your pillow. You should have some comfort to know that the people that you have in your life that you want to be saved, Jesus has the power to save them, and he's already working in their hearts, okay? Rest a little easier tonight. But what can we do, right? If we have no control over whether or not somebody is saved, do we actually have a reason to share our faith? You know the answer to that. Yes, we do. We're supposed to. We just, maybe we just don't know the why or the how. So our parable today taught us that the kingdom of God is like sowing seeds. So if you would like to, let's look at the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, for a moment. If you don't want to turn there, all the scripture today is going to be up on the screens for you because we're going to spend most of our time in Mark, but we're going to jump around a little bit. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Now, you, remain, you may remember last week that Philip actually used a different translation for some of his readings. Uh, I'm actually going to do that the same, for the same reason. Uh, I accidentally left it on this when I was doing my research on the computer, and it made a way more sense. So you'll see why in the very first verse. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. My version of the Bible says this, Send your grain over the seas, and after many days you will get a return. Your Bible may say something like, throw your bread in the water. And I don't think that makes any sense. So just, just feed the ducks. Do it. I know doctors say it's not healthy. Do it anyway. No, send your grain overseas. So we're, this is the new English translation. That's where we're going to be. Send your grain overseas, for after many days you will get a return. Divide your merchandise among seven or eight investments, for you do not know what calamity may happen on the earth. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they will empty themselves on the earth. And whether a tree falls to the south or the north, the tree will lie wherever it falls. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who observes the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind, or how the bones form in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Verse 6, sow your seed in the morning, and do not stop working until the evening. For you do not know which activity will succeed, whether this one or that one, or whether bro both will prosper equally. Solomon is sharing, he's sharing some very practical spiritual wisdom with us. And if you know anything about Solomon, that's kind of his deal. That's what he does. He's very famous for doing that. Solomon is saying that you and I have no idea what will happen in the future. Because forces outside of our control are at work all the time. We can choose to spend our time worrying about which way the wind is going to knock over that tree. But the tree's just going to fall anyway. So be prepared to do the work that you can do. Solomon here is saying that the clouds may bring rain, they may not. But if it is going to rain, there's nothing we can do to stop it. So too, the kingdom of God is going to bring life to those whom it brings life to. We can't force the seeds to take root. Let's look back at Mark again real quick. Verse 27 says, and it's not going to be up on the screen. Uh, we'll just read it real quick. Mark 4.27 says, he goes to sleep, the man who is sowing the seeds. He goes to sleep, and he gets up night and day, and the 
seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Church, it's not the farmer's job to know how the seeds sprout in the earth. It is not his job to know which individual seed may hold the potential for life and which one might be a dud. They all look the same anyway. Solomon makes the argument, you do not know the work of the God who makes everything. It is just our job to sow the seeds, to do the work that is laid before us. Because we do not know the future, we must faithfully serve in the present. Because we do not know the future, we must serve faithfully in the present. When we experience the kingdom of God, it drives us to want that for others. This is step one of our parable. This is sow the seeds. But step two, it it takes the power away from us because now Jesus is saying to wait, to just go ahead and finish our day's work, go get some rest because now God's at work. Verse 28 of Mark 4 says, by itself, the soil produces a crop. First, the stalk, then the head, and then the full grain in the head. I did some research uh, for the sermon in preparation, and the process the Bible is describing is called germination, okay? Think back to like eighth grade science class. It is the process in which the seed absorbs water and oxygen from the soil, and then it enlarges until the coating, it breaks apart, and then the roots and the shoots begin to sprout. That part, it can't be forced. That is just what's going to happen because it is a seed. The text came alive for me when I read this sentence from West Virginia University's website. I have it up on the screen here. This is just on their article about germination. Seeds remain dormant until conditions are favorable for germination. Seeds remain dormant until conditions are favorable for germination. And that's it for us Since we can't force a seed to sprout, our responsibility lies in making sure that the conditions are favorable for it it to begin growth. See, though we have no control over the seed itself, we can meet the seed's needs. We can till the soil. We can do all that we can to make sure that the temperature is as perfect as it needs to be. I believe this has huge implications for the way that we interact with our loved ones. See, if we spend our time just hyper-focused on whether or not we can make sure that they become Christians, we're going to actually stop doing the work that has been laid out before us. I feel like we can probably start taking a little bit of good notes. I'm going to give you some real practical resources Um, Because we're going to deep dive now into how a Christian actually does the work to make conditions favorable for the kingdom to take root in somebody's life. But before we get too far, the one thing that needs to happen before anything else is going to help, okay? There's one thing that needs to happen before any practical thing that we can do is actually going to help. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is just what has to happen before anything that we do actually has any impact on their lives. Romans 10 says this, and this will be on the screen as well. 
Romans 10, starting in verse 14, says, How are they to call on one they have not believed in? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how timely is the arrival of those who proclaim the good news? But not all have obeyed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, consequently, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the preached word of Christ. Nobody can believe unless they hear first. Paul does a great job here in Romans. He makes that appeal. That's sowing the seed itself. You need to preach the gospel. Now, once the gospel is heard, we are empowered as Christians to do three things in the lives of those we care about. Are you ready? Number one thing that we are empowered to do as Christians who care about other people, Christ followers generously meet the needs of others. That is our job. We could be here for weeks looking at every passage that kind of makes that direct uh, compelment in our lives uh, to, to allow Christ followers to engage in generosity. We could spend weeks on that. I thought about Acts 2, 42 is a great verse. But instead, I'm going to let this one passage make an appeal. So 1 Timothy, actually, chapter 6, verses 17, 17 through 19, excuse me, blah, blah, blah. 1 Timothy says this, Command those who are rich in this world's goods not to be haughty or to set their hope on riches, which are uncertain, but on God who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others. In this way, they will save up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future, and so lay hold of what is truly life. Because the Lord has dealt so generously with you and I, we are called to pass that generosity forward onto others. Church, when we were at our neediest, as we looked upon the list of very credible charges that were made against us by our own sin, Jesus Christ, he took that ledger, he read every single charge, committed them to heart, and the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he paid our debts that happened in each of our lives if we call ourselves a Christian. Now, how did that change your attitude towards Jesus? We are enabled by that grace and mercy to pay it forward to those who have physical needs as well as emotional or spiritual needs. That is the water, this is the fertilizer that that seed needs to grow. Now, there's no cover-all method to make sure that you're effectively meeting the right needs for the right people. And just as an aside, if you're making the choice about how generous you are versus how likely they are to respond to the gospel, that's just, that is just a legalism that Jesus already freed you from. Don't condemn them to that. Maybe you're like me, you're concerned that you might be enabling somebody to either take advantage of you or you're condoning somehow their bad behavior. Use your best judgment when you meet somebody's needs. Use your best judgment, just err on the side of grace. Is it a risk? Absolutely. But Jesus paid it all to get you, and he knew everything about you. Go ahead and let that fact inform your grace that you show to others. 
Church, the second thing that we are empowered to do in the lives of those we care about, if we want them to love Jesus, is that Christ followers uphold the dignity of others. When someone lives a lifestyle that contradicts the way that we believe that they should be living, it is pretty natural for us to feel threatened. But the temptation is for us to then berate them or dehumanize them even. This plays itself out pretty differently depending on how close you are to the person. If it's your child, and if we, so if it is your child, and then we feel the responsibility for their salvation instead of just trusting in Jesus, what happens is, is we punish instead of discipline. You see the difference there? Instead of growing them into something, we are harming them. Maybe that's a very fine line, but that is something that happens. We have whole generations of children and adults that are deconstructing their faith or just leaving it entirely. And they're doing this because of the way that their parents forced their own belief system and their morals and their behaviors onto them, and they just beat them and berated them in the name of their good Lord Jesus. We also have entire people groups that are violently rejecting Jesus because of the hate and the contempt that is spewed at them constantly. You'll see a Christian have a Bible in one hand and then a pamphlet in the other about why that person is going to hell. And then they go, I don't know why nobody comes back to church. No, instead, the Bible actually teaches us how to deal with this all the way in the very first book of the Bible, in the account of creation. Genesis 1 says this, starting in verse 27. Genesis 1 says, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the entire earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the animals of the earth and to every bird of the air and to all creatures that move on the ground, everything that has living breath in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God made us in his own image. So when we look across that political aisle at that person you are just so tempted to write off and condemn, remember that that person bears the same image as you do. We are made to look like our father. So look at that person. When you see the traces of that similarity, that family lineage, we're going to see the face of the one who has provided for all of our needs and he's cared for us since the beginning of creation. As we see the image of our father and somebody that we, we don't like, frankly, it should soften our hearts to them. It should compel us to maintain and even defend their dignity as a fellow image bearer of God. If our hearts are softened to them, their hearts will be softened to the work of the kingdom, period, full stop. 
if our hearts are softened to others, their hearts will be softened to the work of the kingdom. So if we, if we bring it back to the parable of our seeds, this is how, that we, how we control the temperature and we create that optimal environment for the roots to take hold when they sprout. And when God said to, to subdue the earth, he didn't mean to conquer it and beat it into submission. God loves to use the language of agriculture. He's telling us to grow and to tend the earth. You and I, we are caretakers of God's garden. We are caretakers of all of its inhabitants. We take what we're given and we help it to thrive. We help plants thrive. We help civilization thrive. We help others thrive. Church, tend the soil. The last thing that Christ followers are empowered to do in the lives of those that we care about is this. Christ followers pray for others without ceasing. Man, I can't tell you how encouraging it is to look at my phone right before I get up here and to just have people that say they're praying for me. No explanation. I just know that I'm covered in prayer. Make sure somebody can say that about you, that you cover them with prayer. That's a freebie. That wasn't in my notes. That was just something nice that happened to me earlier. 1 Timothy 2 says this. First of all, then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people, even for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Such prayer for all is good and welcomed before God our Savior, since he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Bookmark that. For there is one God and one intermediary between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, revealing God's purpose at his appointed time. We humble ourselves and we bring glory to God when we acknowledge how limited we are. As we look at our inability to control so we see our lack of power when it comes to who believes Jesus and who doesn't. God has blessed us with the greatest gift in that regard. We have a direct connection to the one who is in control of everything. What a gift. And more than that, the Bible says God hears us when we call. God has promised that we've got his ear at all times and more so, that Jesus is even at his right hand, and he's interceding on our behalf. He's making an appeal for us before God at all times. So if you care about somebody, you have the ability to be on your knees before the Lord and crying out to him for their benefit. That's something that you are empowered to do. And if you're not sure it's working, just keep doing it. Pray faithfully, pray diligently. God hears you. God is listening to you. And man, you think you care for this person? God cares about them so much more than you and I could ever hope to even realize. God will honor your prayers. The Bible says that he will. He'll follow through. He'll make good on his promises. 
As we come to a close today, let's just go ahead and look back to the parable that Jesus is using. The kingdom of God is like a man scattering seeds. We, we can control how long we labor. We can control how often we're scattering those, how often we're scattering those seeds, excuse me. But when we have sown the seeds, when that work is done, God is in full control of what happens next, okay? Acknowledge how limited you are, that you don't know the future, but you can work now in the present and honor the Lord in that way. And when that seed finally sprouts, if you've done the right things, you maintain the right conditions for the kingdom to take root, man, you're going to be there to reap the harvest. They won't cut you out. See, Jesus has done the work of bringing a heart that was dead in sin back to life. And now you're there to continue that life with them. What a gift. Man, this is when you become an eternal family. You share the same goals. You get to love the same Father with all your hearts and souls and minds and your strength. When the kingdom takes root and you have successfully tended the soil, man, now begins discipleship and sharing each other's burdens. And don't be discouraged if you haven't seen fruit yet. Okay, I know that we all have those in our lives that aren't where we want them to be. That's just the truth. I know that there are people that we wish we could change. But if we've been faithful to do the work that God has actually put before us, God has promised to be faithful to hear our prayers and save those that receive Jesus. So carry on. Be winsome as you share Jesus. Practice if you need to. And when you share Jesus, trust that God is working in their hearts. Control what God says that you can control. And tell God that you desire for that person to be saved. God's going to do the rest. Just be patient. I know it's hard. You can do it. God is working whether you can see it or not. I hope that encourages you today. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and continue in song, okay? Heavenly Father, we trust that you are working whether or not we can see it. Maybe we need to say it a few times before that takes effect in our hearts and minds. Maybe we need to meditate on that. But God, we know that you are trustworthy. And when you say that you care for somebody and you say that you're gonna do something, we trust you. God, help, our, help us to live our lives walking in that trust as we trust and obey. God, we love you. And we want others to love you. And it's so hard to see them struggling. God, I'm reminded that today my youngest brother's getting baptized. After so many years of fighting you, Father, So I thank you for the faithfulness that you have shown. <coughs> that you are so good and nobody's too far gone. And no matter what, God, you're in control. <coughs> Father, you are worthy of all of our praise and all of the honor that we can bring you. More so than we could ever hope to achieve. God, you are so able, immeasurably more, to do immeasurably more than we could ever hope or dream. So God, I pray that today we all 
maybe take a moment and take stock of the people that we love, that we know need you. God, give us the strength to pray for that person and to reach out, to tend the soil, to meet the needs of those that we love, and even maybe those that are strangers, God, because you've called us to. So we don't know how long you're going to be working in their lives, but we know you are. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.